0: The following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. Well, the entire book of Galatians is about the gospel, and if you're new with us, you are really coming in on the end of our series. Next Sunday will be our final final talk within the Galatians series. And so in our second to last talk, we, we look at the whole scope of this book, and we see that It's all about the gospel. And up to this point, especially last week, we are given really a mirror to look into. And Paul is saying, in light of the gospel, the Spirit is is working in you, empowering you, encouraging you, filling you to, to manifest the fruit of the Spirit, to be transformed into Christ. And we have two natures. We have the Spirit nature within us, working to transform us to be like Christ. And then we have the sin nature in us wanting to accomplish the opposite. And now he's turning this mirror around. And he's saying, okay, now, in light of how you've applied this to yourself, and, and you're believing this and embracing this, this is how you apply the gospel to your relationships with other people. And now, this truth we've been given, we see that, man, it gets messy. Now, we can read chapter 5 and... and think about it, be introspective, and read about the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, and we can say, yeah, there's areas I need to to work on, but then we need to come out of ourselves and now live our lives with others, and relationships are messy, aren't they? I mean, aren't relationships messy? I think we all have had experiences, maybe even presently having experiences where, where there's relationships that are just, they're strained. There's relationships that are awkward. There's relationships that we have have broken from, that we have abandoned or that have been abandoned from us. And the Bible wants us to know this, that a life lived according to the gospel and by the Spirit must and will always transform our relationships. If we are living in step with the Spirit, last week we talked about, this will transform who we are our self-image will transform our identity, but it also it must transform the way that we treat other people, the way that we have relationships with other people. And so our passage is, is not that long, it's short, but it is packed with some really extremely practical stuff for us. And there's two things I want to do in this passage. First, I just want to talk about what, are some, what is a, a roadblock to really having a gospel-centered relationship with others? Where do we fall apart? Where does it break apart in a gospel-centered relationship? And secondly, I want to spend the rest of our time talking about, well, then what does a portrait, looking at these pas- at this passage, a portrait of a gospel-centered relationship look like? What does it look like to apply what the Spirit is doing in our lives to people around us? And so first, let's look at this roadblock to a gospel-focused or a gospel-centered relationship. And we started in verse 1, but I want to... I want to just pick up because uh, in verse 25, just a couple verses behind that and, and read that to you. It says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And really, that verse really sets up what we are to learn in verses 1 through 10. There is one main insecurity. There is one thing that could potentially destroy An otherwise healthy relationship, and that is conceit. And Paul says, let us not become conceited. And what is conceit? Conceit is this this deep insecurity that manifests itself in having to prove to ourselves or to others our worth, our value. And we could be conceited in two ways, he says. We can be conceited by provoking or envying. Provoking is someone provokes when they are sure of his or her superiority. They know that they are better, and so they look down on people who aren't as good as them. And so they're conceited by provoking that person. We can become conceited by envying as well. An envious person is someone who is conscious of his or her inferiority, their weakness, their lack of ability or skill or or whatever, and looks up to a person and desires what that person's, that person has. And here's why gospel-centered relationships are killed by that insecurity because both of those things, provoking and envy, are self-absorbed. They're inward focused. They're thinking about ourselves. They're both seeking their own worth at the expense of somebody else. They're both works righteousness. They're looking to find acceptance by their performance or what they have or what they do. And we understand this in light of the gospel. Paul wants us to understand if we really understand the gospel, that it frees us from a performance-based acceptance from God, and that we have been given everything that Christ has because of, of his work and his righteousness that is applied to our life by faith. If we understand that, then we will be free from the need to provoke, the need to envy, the insecurity of being conceited. And so he wants us to know that the Spirit working in our life creates a whole new self-image. It creates a new way of how we think about ourselves, And we have to get to that place first before we start applying, how do we then see our relationships with other people? Because I'm sure many times you've maybe you've even heard this passage being read out of context of Galatians, and all we read is just chapter 6, and we just read the verses that says, Don't grow weary in doing good. And so then the message of that is, guys, the Bible says we need to do good. And so let your life be focused on doing good to other people. And if we just talk about that, we miss the gospel-centered perspective that Paul wants to drive home. That if we are living in step with the Spirit, if we are applying the gospel to us, that Christ's work is sufficient for our acceptance before God, then this will overflow into a natural gospel-centered relationship with other people if we are unable to see what who we are in Christ because of what he has done in spite of who we are then we'll be unable to see what other people are in Christ in spite of who they are or what they've done imagine just with me for a moment today right now in an instant everything that you have been trying to believe everything that you have wanted in Christ to feel fully secured right now in an instant, you believe it. You believe that it doesn't matter what you have done. It doesn't matter your mistakes. It doesn't matter your weaknesses. Everything, you are accepted in Christ, and there is nothing that you can do that can separate you from the acceptance of Christ. And everything that God has, has been given to you, all of His riches, all of His grace, all of His mercy, There is no proving that you have to do on your part. Everything that God has is yours, and you are fully in a position of acceptance and belovedness and and pleasure from God. Now think about that if you could. Now how are you going to treat other people? Does that free you up a little bit? Does it change your your perspective a little bit on how you will treat people when they sin, when they are weak, when they fail. And that's what Paul wants us to see. He says, now, if we apply this truth, if we really embrace the gospel in our life, we won't be so concerned with proving our point when people fail. Instead, we will be concerned with something entirely different, something that is according to the law of God, the law of Christ, something that is spirit-led. Think of a time when you were with somebody and you found out that somebody sinned. You found out somebody was struggling with a sin. Have you ever thought to yourself, I can't understand why that person's struggling with that thing. I don't struggle with that thing. That's not a weakness of mine. Why can't they get it? Why can't they understand it? Paul wants us to see that we have no reason to boast because all of us are in need of this work of Christ in our life. All of us are in need of the Spirit's work in our life to give us a new self-image where we are not conceited, where we're not provoking, where we're not envying, but we realize that all of us need the work of Christ in our life and are undeserving of His grace. And so we are taught here to bear with the burdens, bear with the struggles of others. Now, how do we treat people when they fail? And I want to give a handful, just a small handful, as we go through this passage together. How do we treat people when they struggle? When we struggle, how do we preach to ourselves? And he shows us exactly what a gospel-centered relationship looks like when we're walking in the Spirit. And so I just have a few here. Gospel-centered relationships: the first one is are neither quick to criticize nor afraid to confront. Look at verse one, brothers. I, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual. To restore him in a spirit of gentleness. How do you react when you find out that someone has messed up, that someone has sinned? Think of your husband, think of your wife, think of your child, think of your coworker, your neighbor, think of a good friend, think of someone in the church or a mutual acquaintance. Is gentleness the word that you would use to describe your reaction? That's that's kind of painful, isn't it? This is this is this is painful. This verse breaks my heart because I wouldn't characterize myself with that word. When someone lets me down, when someone betrays, when someone sins. And Paul is saying, this is this is a sin. This is a when someone is caught in sin, this sin has overtaken them. It's not just a mistake. It's not just a misstep. I mean, this is something that has just taken over their life and caused them to to fall into moral failure. Is gentleness, the word that you would describe yourself. See, gentleness is a word that is used to describe this act of restoring a person. And this word is used, it has been used in, in the first century, often in a medical situation where someone's leg or or limb has become dislocated and the doctor would or physician would restore or relocate that bone they would fix that bone they would put it back into socket I found myself actually having to do this just a couple weeks ago with my with my toddler son he had a nursemaid's elbow it's not a complete dislocation but if you know of it it's a it's a moderate dislocation of the elbow. And it basically is very painful and gives you a dead arm. And urgent care was closed and my, uh, I lost my insurance and, uh, or everything went up and it costs now more to go to urgent care and go to the emergency room. And so I thought, well, if they can do it, I can do it. So the YouTube has to have something about this on there. I know. Um, so I went on YouTube and I thought, you know, setting elbow back in socket. And, and I, there, was some, there was a video that popped up, and so I watched it. And, and it was, I had to watch it several times because uh, the child in this video was screaming so loud I couldn't hear the doctor's instructions. And so I kept re- rewinding it over and over again. And my son is in there, and, and, and he's in the bedroom, and he's crying, and his arm is just you know kind of a dead, dead weight. He can't move it. Um, and this has happened before. And so I, I, we went to the emergency room, and they did it. So I thought, well, I can learn how to do it. And I went in there very carefully. And imagine yourself, someone has dislocated their arm. How will you approach this situation? I mean, let's say you can't go to the doctor. They don't exist. And that's, how my, that's how I was working. Let's say you can't. I mean, they just don't exist. And, and you're, how are you going to approach this, this arm? It's, it's in that manner that we should approach someone who has fallen into sin. Okay, this is a problem. This needs to be dealt with. This needs to be addressed. If I neglect this, it gets worse. But the way that I will approach it is with a, a, a severity of, of sobriety of mind, a, a stillness of hand, a clarity of thought, very careful as to not make it worse. And so I go in there and, and I'm, I'm gripping his elbow. I'm gripping his, 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 his bicep with one arm and his his forearm with my other hand, and I have a very firm grip, but it's like a, like a golf grip. I mean, it's firm, but, but soft, because I don't want to break his arm off. And so I follow the directions on YouTube, and I, I do a maneuver that kind of twists it back, and I hear a pop. And Cohen just starts laughing. He just breaks out in Laughter. <laughs> And he's, he hears the pop, and he doesn't feel the pain anymore. And I have, I'm just sweating beads, and I'm so nervous. And I'm thinking, I think that worked. I think that worked. And I'm looking at Janae, and i was like, I think that worked. And he's just laughing. And it was like, Gee, I don't need no doctor. I can do this. <laughs> so if any of you or no. <clears throat> I do, any, you know, appendix, removal of gallbladders, whatever. But this is the, this time it worked. Um, I won't press my luck, but. This is the posture. Imagine, this is, this is what he's trying to get across. Imagine, it's like relocating a dislocated elbow. That's how we should approach people when we find that they've fallen into sin. That we are not quick to criticize. That we don't just get in there, say, well, this just needs to happen, and we just go in there and, and just mess with it. And yet, we are not afraid to confront because we know that it must be dealt with. That to not deal with it is actually very dangerous it's detrimental to the health of that person we shouldn't be careless and we don't neglect it we're sober in our thinking we approach this with examining ourselves rehearsing it figuring out how to approach it in a way that is gentle but firm a clear grasp on it and we can go too far this way we can we can also see we can be we we also we know okay this is what it looks like to be harsh and just go in there and real too quick to criticize. But we can err in the other way as well, which is being too gentle. And I don't want, you to, mis- I don't want t- you to misunderstand indifference with gentleness. Because some of you might think, well, I don't want to hurt them. I don't want to get in the way. I don't want them to be angry. And I don't know the whole story. And so I'll just do nothing and let it play out. That is not Gentleness. It's masquerading as gentle, but it is not gentle. It's neglectful. It's painful. Spiritual care is not just a friendly interaction. It's not just loving and encouraging. It's engaging in real life. It's restoring. It's encountering what is best, ultimate best, and ultimate loving for this person. Good friends don't stand idle when a brother or sister is fallen into sin. When a brother or sister is stumbling, if there is a lack of accountability, there is a lack of gospel-centered relationship with that person. You know why we can be gentle. You know why what permission we have in order to be gentle. Because we don't change anybody. Because listen, it's not up to us. We don't spiritually forgive or restore anyone. We don't have the power to do that. Only the Spirit of God working in that person's life has the ability to truly restore that person. And so it takes something away from us. It takes, I mean, it takes a burden off of us. You are not responsible for making sure that this person is right with God. And so I hope that makes you feel like, oh, I'm, fr- I'm free then to just approach this person with gentleness and humility and boldness and care. And I could be a, I could manifest the work of the Spirit for this person so that God could ultimately work in this person's life. That's why we are free to be Gentle. Changing people is not what God has told us to do. But to be spirit-led, to be gospel-centered, to be gentle in our approach, he's told us to do. If we desire to be in gospel community with others, we must recognize that sin is, is with us all. We shouldn't be surprised when it happens. It shouldn't discourage us, but it should prepare us to be ready, to be on our feet, to be sober in our thinking, to be firmly rooted in the grace of Christ so that when when a brother or sister does stumble, we know how to engage with that person. It doesn't throw us off. You see, that's usually what happens is someone sins and we say, I can't believe this. How has this happened? How could they let this happen? I don't know what to do. We need to make it right. We all have this. We all stumble. We all sin. And Paul says, don't think of yourself too highly than you really are. If you see someone that is stumbling, beware because you are just as vulnerable to fall into that temptation. Don't assume that what has happened to them can never happen to you. See, that's what builds humility. And when we realize that, we say, okay, let me put myself in that person's shoes. Let me... Approach this person to love them, to restore them. And he goes on in verse 2 after teaching us to approach it with a spirit of gentleness. And I want you to think of that. When you have a brother, sister, a family member, a friend who is stumbling in sin and you know that you should approach them, I want you to think of if I were relocating their elbow, how would I approach them? And that's how we should approach them. When there is sin. Verse 2 says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The second thing, the gospel-centered relationships are other-focused. They are other-focused. Bearing one another's burdens fulfill the law of Christ. This means we are to love others as Christ has loved us. So the general idea of loving our neighbor, which can be a very general and kind of an idea way up there, is brought down practical in practical terms. One way we love our brother or sister is by carrying their burdens by assisting with the responsibility like like moving or by coming alongside them during a difficult a difficulty with grieving with them restoring them praying with them guiding them giving them wisdom sharing with them instruction and the point is that a gospel centered relationship is centered on a person not on a rule and what paul was trying to get these people away from is stop fi- following a a rule stop following a law you're putting your relationships into a a step a a multi-step process even with god this is how you're approaching him but it is not about a rule or a law it is about a person it is about loving and following christ and it is about uh, carrying the burdens of a person or people in your life live by the law of christ loving as christ loved out of joy and not manipulation Another thing that he goes on to in verse 4 and 5 is this, but let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not his neighbor. And then he says, for each will have to bear his own load. And so the next step would seem contradictory to the previous one, but I want to flesh it out for us. The the third thing is that gospel-centered relationships are individually responsible. They're individually responsible. Now, this this is interesting because here we just got done with a verse that says, This is how you fulfill the love of Christ. Bear one another's burdens. And then Paul says, for each of us will have to carry our own load. Is he confused here? Now, there are things that we should get help with, and there are things that we should do on our own. We are humbly and gently supposed to come alongside a person and help them with problems and tasks and burdens and struggles of all kind. But then there are some burdens that we cannot share with another person. And this is our burden that God gives us individually to be responsible to obey what he has placed before us, to be responsible with the circumstances that he has placed in our life. And it is tempting to give people more than we are supposed to give. It is tempting to find ourselves in this place of, Hey, the Christian thing to do, you may know people like this, maybe you are a person like this, the Christian thing to do is, I'm struggling, you need to come alongside me and help me. And what we're really saying is, you need to be responsible for this struggle I'm having. And if you love Christ, and you're my brother, then you need to take this. And Paul is saying, there are some things that we need help with, and then there are other things that we cannot share with anyone. Whatever struggle God has brought into your life, I want you to hear this. Whatever circumstance, whatever challenge, whatever sin you're struggling with, whatever you're tempted in, God wants you to be personally responsible for obeying Him in that circumstance. And no one can do this for you. You see, He uses even a different word. He says there are burdens and then there are loads. There are burdens that we can't, we can't carry on our own and we need assistance and yet, and then there are loads that we aren't supposed to give to anyone. The care and encouragement of our Christian brothers and sisters is always a supplement and never a substitute for obeying God. We can never fully give away what he's given us to bear. So how do we, how do we fit this into thinking how do we have a gospel-centered relationship? Well, this means that we, are, that we are allowing people to carry some of our burdens, but we are never fully giving everything away and saying, I need you to help me. I need you to support me. I need you to be responsible for my sin. And God is saying, I've placed this in your life. I've equipped you with the Spirit to empower you. Walk in the Spirit. Be obedient with what I've given you. And Christ will be with you. He will be with you to comfort you. He will minister to you by the Spirit that is alive in you. He will supply to you all that is lacking. God is enough. And yet the the encouragement from others is a a blessing. It's a bonus. It is is a support and we ought to do it. We ought to seek it out. We are never to rely on it completely for our restoration. The next thing is, as he goes on is is that we ought to invest mutually in verse 6. The one who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. And here we see an exchange that ought to take place in in any healthy church, in any healthy family or environment, in any healthy friendship. There's this portrait of people that are sharing with, with one another the good things that they have from God for the benefit of the other person. A gospel-centered relationship is characterized in part by someone recognizing the good that they've been given and they share it with other people. What we have is a gift from God. Everything that God has given us is a gift from Him. And we ought to think carefully, unhindered, unreservedly. We ought to think without hesitation, how can I use this to bless others? To build up others, to encourage others. And I'm glad that he says this because, in case that we've heard this previous one, where I said, this last point where I said, we're all responsible for ourselves, we might be tempted to, to go down this route of saying, well, then it's to each his own. We're all on our own. And then ultimately, then, I mean, yeah, we, can, we could want people to encourage us, but, but at the end of the day, it's just we're alone. It's just me and Jesus, and that's it. Who can I depend on? And I'm glad that he says this because he reminds us of our unity and community within the family of God. He reminds us of what he is doing in our midst, how he's equipping us and and gifting us. We are to share with one another. Something that has been a struggle, no doubt, for all of us since we were two years old. Sharing the gifts that we have been given. Sharing the blessings that we have. Wanting to say, no, this is mine. I need this for my protection, my well-being. And it's been hard for us. Some of us do this a lot better than others. But it's difficult. And a gospel-centered relationship invests mutually. And there's a sober warning in verse 7. He says, we reap what we sow. Maybe you've heard this quote before, this verse before. He says, God is not mocked. What does it mean to mock God? To mock God means to, to live, to act, to behave, to think, to have an attitude in such a way that We believe God is not watching. That we believe that we can keep our gifts to ourselves, we keep our time to ourselves, we keep the blessings that we've been given, and we can do nothing with them and say, well, this is unimportant to God, or God's not watching, or He doesn't care about this, or somebody else will provide the resource for accomplishing that need. Someone else will take care of it. And Paul is saying, we reap what we sow. God is not mocked, we cannot pretend, we cannot uh, hide from God. If he has given us a gift, we cannot just hoard it for ourselves and then just go on our life and say, well, that's okay, he understands. If you've been blessed, then reciprocate. If you want good friends, then be a good friend. I think that's in part what he's getting at. And Paul is specific to this church that he's speaking to, and, and no doubt they're interpreting this as relating to their specific needs of their group. And so let's do that. I think it would be good to, to think about that for our group. Imagine that, I mean, look at, us, look, at us, look at us. Look at the people that are here and maybe represented the variety of gifts, the variety of, of, of wisdom and age and, and talent and opportunity, the variety of perspective. How can we be on the lookout of, how can we bless others with what we have been given? And you don't need to engage in this kind of gospel-centered relationship with every single person in the church. I mean, that is just impractical, and I don't believe that that's what God commands us to do, that we are to find out, okay, what is everybody's need, and then we take an inventory of all of our gifts, and we figure out how to meet needs. But there is a context that we should engage in. We should be in meaningful fellowship and community with people. We do this in the way of life groups. I mean, every week we get together with a small group of people. You don't have to, you don't have to mutually invest in 100 people, but you should do it with, with 8 people, with 10 people, with 12 people. You should be a part of that mutually investing in the life of other people. So you know, what are your needs? Where are you lacking? Where are you struggling? Where are you stumbling? Maybe I can help. Maybe God has blessed me in such a way where I can come alongside and encourage you where you're in need. So the gospel shapes our mindset of how we are to engage in community and when we're in that community, how we ought to love and serve one another. Paul wants us, and and God's word wants us, the gospel to change us from a a consumer mentality of we we come to the meeting, we, we, we we, we pay our dues, we get something in return. He wants to change us from having that consumer attitude to being servants, like I mentioned earlier with our members, to be servant followers together. And there are some implications for us, specifically for our church. If this is your church home, then you should give yourself, in your time, talent, and treasure, you should give yourself generously and graciously to the life and well-being of the church. That You should get in community with life groups. You should seek out relationships where you can be accountable, where you can bless, where you can use the gifts that God has given to you. You should open up your home. You should share your car. You should... Do whatever. You should think, what has God given me that I can use to be a blessing? Be available to be used by God whenever an opportunity comes up to pray for the work of God in in the life of people in in your life. Do you consider yourself a servant? Some of you are, are really, really actually gifted in that way, that you just, you do this so well, it comes very naturally to you and even supernaturally to you you, you love to do this. You really feel you're worshiping God as you serve. And, and many of you might not enjoy it as much. And yet, we're all called. Without partiality, we're, we're, we're called to be servants. And the last thing is that we should have a Christ-centered motivation. That a gospel-centered relationship has a Christ-centered motivation. He says in verse 9, Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. If we do not give up, he's talking about do not. if we do not lose motivation, if we don't lose our vision, if we don't have, lose the grasp on why God has brought us together in the first place. A lack of motivation, a lack of follow-up or follow-through in relationships will will what will happen is the same thing when there's a lack of follow-up in, in gardening. And, and Paul uses this analogy of reaping what we sow. And if we neglect to invest in relationships, this, or if we do that with gardening, we get the same result. We get a, a dead crop. We get a, a fruitless crop. We get a very small yield, a very small harvest. But the encouragement for us is But look at what happens when we do invest, when we have this gospel-motivated and spirit-led investment in the life of people. What do we get to look forward to? He says, you will reap a harvest. You will. God promises that we will. We will never miss out uh, on doing good. We will never regret doing good. It will never return void. Sacrificing. A spirit-motivated sacrifice for the benefit of someone else will never be a waste. Never a waste of time, never a waste of money, never a waste of resources. It'll always bear fruit. Isn't that great? Isn't that so encouraging? To have something in your life that you know is guaranteed that will, that will bear fruit? <coughs> the most fruitful relationships are the ones that confront us when we need confronting, that challenge us, that encourage us, that invest in us, that bear our burdens, and that call us to be responsible. If you are a close friend of mine, then it's a good chance that sometime I didn't like you very much. What do I mean by that? It means that if you are a dear and close friend of mine, it means that we have gone through a lot of mess. Because the best and most fruitful and most genuinely gospel-centered relationships will go through that. They will be messy. They will continually challenge us. They will, where we are, we're hitting heads, we will want to divide. We will want to start over. And that yields a very immature and superficial harvest. Where our friendships are uh, an inch deep and a mile wide. And the reality of a gospel centered relationship is they are a mile deep and an inch wide. We have maybe a handful of friends that we would consider our best friends, our most intimate friends who know us and still accept us. But those are so fruitful. We're encouraged to stay motivated, to remember the prize. And Christ has prepared all of our circumstances. See, sometimes the things that we are trying to run away from, God is saying, no, I have placed that in your life to draw you closer to me. That person that's bothering you, you can run away, but you will learn nothing. Or you can engage and you, can, you could strive to, to restore that relationship and look forward to the harvest that will come from that, of joy, the harvest of the, of the fruit of the Spirit. Joy, peace, patience, kindness. Gentleness, goodness, self-control. These are the the fruit of the Spirit. To keep up with this sowing analogy, he says, well, harvest costs much more than just the seed, doesn't it? But if the harvest costs more, you say, well, I want a crop of, of, of oregano, parsley, whatever. I want rhubarb you know that it's going to cost you a lot more than just the seed. I mean, you can go get a $1.29 packet of seeds, but you know it's going to cost a lot more than that. It's going to cost a lot of time. It's going to cost a lot of money for soil, for supplies. It's going to cost a lot of water. It's going to cost a lot of nurturing. But you do that. You invest in it because of, not because of what it is in seed form, but because of what it will be when it's fully mature. And if we have that motivation and mentality when we pursue relationships, that'll keep us from dividing. It'll keep us from making it superficial. The, the cost to gospel-centered relationships is really great. It's a lot, but it's well worth it. And that's why he says, don't grow weary of doing good, for in due season you will reap. You will want to not persevere. But if you do, you'll reap a great fruit. You'll never grow sorry. You'll never be sorry of doing good. Because when we are expressing a spirit-motivated good towards others, we are being just like Jesus. And this is where we fulfill the law of Christ. You know, every week we participate in this brief meal called the Lord's Supper. And this is a great analogy for this passage, for who we are. You know, Paul says we we participate in one loaf because we are one and yet we are many. There are many parts of the body. There are many people within this family. There are many brothers and sisters come together, but we are unified. We are in community with each other. And Jesus says this in Matthew 11. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my father, How does this, all of this fit into what Christ has done and continues to do in us through the work of the Spirit? He's saying everything that I have from God, the great harvest and everything is mine, and I'm sharing it with you. Not because you're good, not because you have obeyed me, not because you have done the right thing, but I'm sharing with you because of grace. And the Spirit, will apply this to your life. We'll transform your life. He says, "Take my yoke. It's easy. Are you burdened? Are you burdened in relationships? Then take the yoke of Christ's relationship." And he says, "It's light. It's life-giving. It's gracious. It's merciful. It's restorative." And so we come to this meal and Jesus is saying to us. He says, "I have given my life for you. I've died on the cross in your place for your sins so that you can have the life that I've deserved that you did not work for. And so at the table, at this meal, this brief meal we call the Lord's Supper, we have no reason to boast. If you want to be humbled, then come to the Lord's table and Christ will tell... To you and to me, you've done nothing to deserve this meal. You have done nothing to pay for this, but I give it to you freely. Receive it. Accept this. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we participate in this meal by faith, because by faith we participate in Christ himself. And so I encourage anybody who would come, that you would come trusting in the gospel, trusting in the work of Christ and nothing else. And as you eat, see, we're going to do this, and we do it every week where we pass this out and you pass it to the person next to you. And I want you to think of a couple things as we do this. As you receive this meal for yourself, I want you to preach the gospel to yourself. You're eating and drinking and you're saying, Christ died for me in my place. I receive that with a heart of faith and gratitude. And then you're going to take this and you're going to pass it to the person next to you. And I want you in your heart and mind as you do this to realize to say to this person this is christ his body broken for you and blood shed for you you don't have to say all that but you're saying this in your heart to this person and you're saying i receive you not because of who you are or what you've done but because of what christ has done for you you see our meal is about the work of christ in our life and also for the work of christ in our life through us and for other people let's pray for our meal For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com.